All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only tested crypto tax software. Luca's listened to your feedback. Now you can calculate capital gains and see the results using three different accounting methods side by side, all for free. You only pay if you want to access their detailed tax reports. Luca supports unlimited transaction uploads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refund. Luca Tax wants to help Masari's unqualified opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code Masari Tax and you'll get $5 off the normal price of $39.95 when downloading today. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. Have you seen what the Crypto.com team's been up to lately? Talking about the MCO Visa card. It's a beautiful metal card you can top up with crypto and spend anywhere Visa's accepted. You get up to 5% back on all your spending, plus 100% rebates on Spotify, Netflix, and now Amazon Prime Travel. How about unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates? So many perks in just one card. You can download the Crypto.com app and reserve yours today. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiot with another edition from the Citadel. I've got another guest who's in a Citadel of his own. Chad Cascarilla, who's the co-founder and CEO of Paxos. Uh, Chad and I have known each other for a long time because he's been around in Bitcoin almost from day one, I'd say. Uh, you are so early in the Bitcoin ecosystem, you could make an argument that you are connected to Satoshi or, or at least have a probabil- probabilistic chance of being Satoshi. Um, I'm exaggerating only slightly. Uh, but before um, Paxos and, and ItBits, uh, Chad was also a, a prolific investor, uh, both in the Bitcoin ecosystem and, and during the subprime um, financial crisis in 2007-2008 via Liberty City Ventures. So we're going to talk about the origin story. It is so fortuitous that we had a reschedule on this particular recording because just a few hours ago, we had more unprecedented Fed action uh, where they are now going to purchase junk bonds. The money printer will not stop going burr for any reason, it seems. And uh, I'm not sure that there's any in sight. Today was a big day with unemployment claims, now 17 million unemployed in three weeks. Um, The word that I keep saying over and over again right now is unprecedented. It feels like in every single interview. Um, let's, Let's start by talking about the parallel universe of 2007, 2008, which is a scenario and, and, and a financial crisis in and of itself that you were uh, intimately uh, knowledgeable of and investing around. So um, maybe the, the quick backstory before 2007, and then we can talk about um, what, what ultimately got you into Bitcoin, was, um, which was the, the financial crisis itself in, in, in 2008. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, by the way, great to be on, Ryan. I appreciate you having me here. I think it definitely is timely. Um, you know, and I've seen uh, versions of this before. I've spent my career as an investor and uh, investing in financial services companies uh, globally. And so this is my kind of third big bear market that I've lived through 2000, 2008, and now today. And um, uh, at least bear markets in the stock market. I'd love to a few more of those in the Bitcoin world too. Um, but I think, um, you know, there's a lot of parallels between today and 2008, and there's a lot of things that aren't the same. Uh, but it is useful framework. I started my career investing in financial services companies. I started an asset manager in 2005 uh, with my co-founder, Emil Woods. And uh, uh, that really started investing globally in stock markets and then began to add private equity vehicles and our venture capital arm, Liberty City Ventures. And um, it allowed us to really look at the entire life cycle of financial services companies. And we did a really good job of capturing a number of important trends. The first was this big trend in terms of changing how markets worked. It used to be based on the floor, trading in like eighths and sixteenths. For some people, might not even realize that anymore. And you know, now you're trading in microseconds. And um, now the only time very now the only time you hear teenth is if it's in a drug deal. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> so um, I don't use my Bitcoin for that. Um, so um, uh, uh, yeah, only my Monero. Uh, so anyways, um, uh, you know, we started to invest, uh, taking advantage of that theme, creating private equity vehicles, uh, investing globally in exchanges and clearing corps. And as we came into the uh, 2008 financial crisis, we really recognized things were totally out of whack in the lending markets. And the apex of that kind of um, wildness was the subprime market. And we were short subprime then going into the crisis in some, uh, some sophisticated ways through CDS and, and also through some um, other instruments. And this allowed us to really take advantage of the crisis. And we actually then created a private equity fund that bought distressed mortgages coming out of it. And what became really clear as we went through that crisis was how broken the plumbing of the financial system was, how it significantly exacerbated the crisis. Didn't cause the crisis. The crisis was, was caused by too much debt and, you know, perhaps uh, even more broadly by really the nature of fiat money. Um, but uh, that wasn't, um, it, and what was really surprising to us, that wasn't the only reason it kept uh, kind of spiraling, uh, not mm -hmm. just too much debt. It was that the plumbing itself wasn't working. And you couldn't trust counterparties as the crisis began to unfold because you didn't know if they were going to be good for um, the loans that uh, you were extending to them or even the settlements of transactions because almost nothing settles in real time. Everything is settling over a day, two days, in some cases, weeks or months in the case of like syndicated loans or a house. And so um, that creates a lot of uh, counterparty risk and people just became too afraid and things began to grind to a halt. And there really is no reason to have settlement risk um, at this time. You have modern technology, you can order toilet paper on your phone, it can get delivered in the same day. Why are we um, taking days to settle electronic piece of information that is a trade? I don't think there's a good reason for it. But if you fast forward to today, uh, believe it or not, the infrastructure is really no different. There's more regulation. There's more capital. The banks are, in general, safer. But at the end of the day, and by the way, not just the banks, the brokers and other pieces, important pieces of the financial system are safer. But the, the actual plumbing is still no different. It's still COBOL mainframes from the 70s, and they're really a, a real lack of responsiveness. And just like in 2008, 
where the crisis was caused by subprime and too much lending. Today, the crisis is caused by a pandemic, uh, one that no one could really have predicted. But it's being exacerbated again by the fact that the plumbing is causing everything to lock up. And that has forced the Fed, um, in part, this has enforced the Fed, to come in and really supply a huge amount of liquidity, more than anyone's ever seen. And just like you said, the word is unprecedented. I think that's the exact right word to use. Um, there are certain examples that you could use. You got to go back really far in time and it mm -hmm. gets really murky. You know, like uh, I've seen examples of comparing this to the outbreak of World War One, which was unexpected and everything was globalized. Uh, there have been other pandemics like the Spanish flu or whatever it might be. Um, but this is kind of a, a really amazing that today there was another 6.5 million unemployment claims. That makes, as you said, about 17 million since the crisis started. I Which think is there's probably be understated, by the way, because they yeah, because they can't process upward. them. Yeah, mm -hmm. and they already yeah, revised last week's upwards uh, by a few hundred thousand as well. So, yeah, yeah, no, I think you know before we're all said and done. And by the way, you started with a three and a half percent unemployment rate. So if you, mm -hmm. you add in the claims plus a three and a half percent unemployment rate, and what's likely to happen over the next couple of weeks, you're talking about an unemployment rate over 20 percent. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that is that starts to really get unprecedented. And uh, especially in such a short period of time. Um, yep. And so that's led to unprecedented reactions, which is a huge amount of liquidity being poured in, a huge amount of um, uh, stimulus programs being poured in. And, you know, there's a lot to digest about whether or not it's too much, too little, just the right amount, um, which we can absolutely talk about. But I think um, going through the crisis in 2008 is what really got me interested in Bitcoin and blockchain. Because mm -hmm. seeing how the system didn't work by having all these centralized intermediaries, but instead um, um, realizing there could be a different way, one based on blockchain, where you could have more decentralization, you could have more access, and because of that, you actually have something that's more resilient and more fair and mm -hmm. um, that allows more innovation. That really excited me. That's what got us to start Paxos. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, so when we came across Bitcoin, it was 2010, you're right. It was very early days. It was just like three cents. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, very early we got involved and we were mining it, uh, but immediately thought about how could we apply this to these problems that we know in financial services that are mm -hmm. so crucial to be solved. And, um, it's a long process to get to where we're at today with Paxos, but I think we finally, um, getting to the point where the, the fundamental changes that we believe um, should happen is something that everyone else is beginning to understand and believe and starting to mm -hmm. implement. And I think that's really exciting. And we can talk about that a little bit more too. Uh, sure. I mean, there's a bunch of different rabbit holes that we can go down. You know, one, one thing that I'm curious to uh, pick your brain on, to my knowledge, you might be the earliest mainstream investor, I guess might, might be one way to think about it. Um, of anyone that I know uh, in, in terms of when you started uh, to accumulate and when you took this seriously. And the comparison I'll make, I won't, you know, kind of uh, try to pretend that I know exactly when other people made their first purchases. But for me, I first learned about Bitcoin and, and, and became acclimated to it and, and actually considered buying it in mid 2011. This was around the debt sequester and the, and the US, you know, debt downgrade by S&P. Um, and at the time, there was basically three ways to trade that event from a macro standpoint. You could buy gold. Um, if you thought this was going to destroy the dollar, you could short the, the U.S. Treasury ETFs. Um, or you could buy Bitcoin. 
And I think I'm one of the few investors that took that thesis insanely seriously and still went 0 for 3 in the execution because I ended up shorting the Treasury ETF, buying gold, um, which basically did nothing. The Treasury ETF rallied because everybody you know, went, went to a flight to safety, ironically. And then I ignored Bitcoin because it was hard. Um, the thesis made sense behind Bitcoin, but how did you get enough conviction that you started taking it very, very seriously um, and mining it and accumulating it um, back in 2010 when it was so low? How did you think about the, um, the optionality? Because from an outsider's perspective, because it was so cheap, it was almost expensive for you to spend so much time thinking about it and setting up the apparatus and, and thinking about the infrastructure. Um, which I think requires a level of vision that 99% of today's crypto investors did not have, either because they weren't acclimated to it early, they weren't familiar with it, um, or they were like me and they were either a combination of too lazy or you know, thought that this was not going to get to, to the critical mass. What was different about this for you and, and was this just a portfolio allocation strategy? Because from an outsider's perspective, it does look like you went all in much, much earlier than the, the typical person, especially since you um, were not a hobbyist, right? You were a professional investor already and had some success with Liberty City Ventures. Yeah, and uh, and um, and uh, with Cedar Hill and our other vehicles, um, mm -hmm. I think the what really captured our imagination was the idea that this could be the ledger of record for assets mm -hmm. in a decentralized way, and we having understood the financial system, the restricted databases, which are essentially how it works now, you either have to be a member of the Federal Reserve, you have to be a member of DTC to access where assets and cash sit. You have to be a member uh, bank in order to be able to issue onto the Visa network. So mm -hmm. we, we saw how there was huge amounts of value that accrued to private networks and to intermediaries that alone could access databases. And um, we also saw how that exacerbated the crisis. And so when we came across mm -hmm. Bitcoin, I can't tell you that I thought it would be uh, where it is today, you know, 7,300 and as high as 18,000. Um, I, I can't say that I knew that for sure. In fact, I thought that that most likely wouldn't happen mm -hmm. because the rule of thumb is uh, a penny stock usually goes to zero. Maybe it goes to $10. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was in some ways the framework we used, but we looked at it as, this could be a really interesting call option because of the technology. Forget the price for a second. This technology was really new and innovative. And we're always looking for new technologies as dedicated financial services investors, especially ones that could be so, I think, fundamentally disruptive. And um, how did, so how did, go ahead. how did you get conviction around the, the tech elements? Um, because a lot of people in hindsight will say, well, that this very vibrant ecosystem, there was all these open source contributors, there are all these cryptographers who had captured their imagination. But when you evolved, that was not true, right? Adam Back yeah. is on record saying, this is not going to work, right? This is yeah. a foolish idea. Here are all the reasons. Greg Maxwell, same thing, right? You were, you were earlier than some of the people that should have known better, in theory. Um, yeah. What about the tech uh, and, and the diligence there? Again, not, you know, because you're talking about small, you know, three sets, right? Like, even if you bought you know, like the, the whole money supply for, for someone that was a traditional a investor. Million dollars. Yeah, yeah, right. It, it's, it's, it's still small potatoes for someone that's managing, you know, institutional capital. Um, but the time commitment to figure out the tech, given that there were a lot of other smart technologists, many of whom were wrote the, uh, created the precursors to Bitcoin um, or, you know, are now the lead maintainers and kind of core developers dismiss it early. 
Um, did that factor in at all, or um, or or kind of how how did you get to know that the tech was so robust, and how did you start triangulating on this as as something that could uh, catch fire, not just as a, a reserve asset in a settlement layer, but a functioning open source project that wouldn't just kind of die on the vine because it didn't have any known developers working on it? Well, I, I would love to tell you uh, that I knew that that's what was going to happen. And I would love to tell you that I even have the capabilities to know that that could have happened. But I don't. I'm not a cryptographer. Uh, I'm not a, a traditional technologist. And so I didn't actually have the tool set to define that. But what I did have is a framework with which to think about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, constantly dealing with um, assets that could have asymmetric payoffs and constantly dealing with um, creating portfolios of these assets mm -hmm. made, it, um, made it not uh, a dependency that it had to succeed in order for me to buy it. Mm -hmm. right? It's not like I put all my life savings into it, so you got to be 100% sure. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time on it, but I'm spending a lot of time looking at a lot of new technologies. And so that is my job. You know, as mm -hmm. a financial services investor and an early stage investor in financial technology companies, that is your job. That's what you're supposed to do. And um, clearly, if you would have, if you, if the threshold was you have to have a hundred percent conviction that this will work, um, you're going to miss a lot of things at mm -hmm. the early stages because you some, can't have that. What, what were some of the other things that uh, you and Emil were, were looking at in the tech space or, or financial services space at that time? And, and what percentage of your bandwidth um, did this experiment take up since it was a small position? Well, um, I think there's a, a couple of components to that. So, you know, you have a portfolio, you're investing across a wide range of things. So, and this is 2010, we own distressed mortgages. You're just, you know, barely a year out of the crisis your own distressed mortgages. There's alternative lending platforms that are just beginning to become developed, mm -hmm. um, uh, both uh, P2P and like B2B, a whole variety of different ways of intermediating what's going on. Uh, there was new financial technology that was coming around that was fixing process problems. And so I think um, there's lots of exciting things that were happening, but none of them were fundamentally changing the system. Right. Some of them might mm -hmm. be um, putting better UIs on the current system and a better experience, but that's not the same thing as fundamentally changing the architecture. And that's what we thought blockchain could do. Now, remember, in 2010, Bitcoin and blockchain were the same thing. I mean, they were synonymous. There was no mm -hmm. uh, range of things. There was no Algorand or Stellar or whatever it was. Uh, Ripple hadn't come along, nor Ethereum. So nothing else existed. So if you wanted to be uh, interested in what was going on in the blockchain world, you had to be interested in the Bitcoin world. And so you got involved, you understood what was happening. And over time, you know, we began to realize what I think everyone else realized that blockchain and Bitcoin are not the same thing. Um, Bitcoin is a specific example of blockchain. Um, and it's a very uh, good one, but it's not the only one. And so that meant that as the ecosystem began to expand, there was even more to do. And there was, it was therefore, um, more valuable to spend time on it. In fact, uh, my co-founder at Cedar Hill and Liberty City, Emil Woods, has a blockchain fund. I'm not actively involved in it because I'm spending all my time on Paxos, but he just has a fund dedicated to uh, crypto and blockchain investments. And he's not the only mm -hmm. one. There's so many of them now. Um, but you couldn't have done that in 2010. You have one option. Either you thought blockchain was interesting and you bought Bitcoin, or you didn't think it was interesting and you went and did something else for a couple of years. 
Yeah, there, there, there was no blockchain, not Bitcoin until post Mt. Gox. Um, yeah, until, is, until is, Ethereum, is, is, really. Right. I mean, well, that, was, that was the first example of it. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you started to see experience like master coin and colored coins and, you know, well, some, that's of true, other, yeah. some of these other elements. And I almost forgot about I just saw yeah. it. Yeah. They, they saw it spike. And then, you know, all of a sudden you heard, uh, okay, how, do, how, you know, Bitcoin's not interesting, but this thing, the blockchain really is because it could help with settlement and all this thing. And, and maybe that was yeah. because of the conversations that you and, and some of the other, you know, more traditional Wall Street types were having where they put two and two together and they said, clearly there's something interesting here, but I just don't want to get involved with this kind of weird, you know, digital asset. Um, but you're right. I think. And by the way, that was, was so common. That was so common yes. then. And by the yep. way, it's still common now, but I mean, yes. then it was so common, which is, you know, I don't get Bitcoin. You can't put through too many transactions per second. There's a lot of slow latency. You can't, this is not really money to be used. How it's never going to compare with yep. Visa MasterCard. And uh, so nice try. Um, mm -hmm. let's go on to the next thing and let's see how else we can use blockchain. It's all gonna be about private blockchains. And there was a huge like period of time where it was all gonna be about private blockchains, kind of like it was gonna be all about intranets back in the day, mm -hmm. not the internet. You know, yep. even when Bill Gates wrote his book and then he had to like go back and change it before it was released because it was obvious it was gonna be the internet, not intranets. I think yep. it's the same thing with like, you know, public versus private blockchains. Yep. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about uh, the transition from investor to operator because um, obviously to a certain extent if you're a professional investor you are operating a fund right you know in, in your case you know multiple different vehicles um, but um, you invest in Ipit in 20, 20, 2012, give or take somewhere in there 2012, 2013? yeah that's right yep um, yeah. and then and then when did you buy it out and 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 how did you manage that transition from Liberty City? ventures and, and the investment vehicles to uh, taking on the, the CEO role? Well, um, so there was really actually no buyout. What, what happened is uh, we incubated Ipit within Liberty City Ventures. Okay. <clears throat> and we've um, uh, incubated a number of different businesses, whether in Liberty City Ventures or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And uh, normally, you know, we incubate them, they grow up and they kind of move off or maybe they don't grow up, they, they don't succeed. Uh, but in the case of um, Ipit, when we started to grow it, um, one of the um, uh, co-founders who worked with me at Cedar Hill and uh, with a meal at Cedar Hill was Rich Teo. And he's still mm -hmm. uh, one of the co-founders. He's the CEO of Asia. Uh, he's um, uh, been living in Asia now for the last, I guess, uh, 10 years or so. And anyways, mm -hmm. he's worked for us since 2005. He started um, really running the company um, and as we got close to being able to get a New York State Trust, which I think was the pivotal moment for Ipid and Paxos, because it is the piece of regulatory approval that allows us to not just operate in the U.S. as a crypto exchange, but more importantly, it allows us to operate as a custodian, holding people's assets and being able to put them on a blockchain. And so when it became clear that we could get this trust, and it took us almost three years, mm -hmm. I actually made the choice that I would rather spend my time building Ipid and Paxos um, than continue to be an investor. And it's not that I don't like investing or love investing because I do. And it's not that I don't think I'm a good investor because I do think I am, but sometimes you want new challenges. And, um, uh, I had never built an operating business. I built an operating as a manager, but not an operating business in the way that it been Paxos is. And it's been, you know, a real, both great challenge and learning experience for me over the last six years. And so that's why I came in full time to run it. And so, um, uh, that was really me coming in, um, as an, at an executive level, 
but the company's been funded by Liberty City Ventures, by myself, by outside um, investors, including RRE and Canaan, amongst others. And so we have a number of people who have funded it. So it looks just like any normal uh, venture-backed business, so to speak. Um, it's just that when it started, it was really incubated inside um, Liberty City. Got it. Um, and let's talk about the uh, the different lines then at Paxos, because at first it was just ItBit. Um, once you got the trust company charter, uh, explain to people why that matters. Um, and I believe you're the first to get that over yeah. the goal line. There's subsequently been a couple of others that have done the same, but the first New York trust charter um, and, and what that allows you to do that's unique in the U.S. exchange space, at least. Yeah, um, I think, uh, in fact, our, we were the first one to go to trust and it actually predates the creation of the bit license. So mm -hmm. you can see we, we really spent a lot of time and the DFS was great about being forward thinking around how they could use um, the current regulatory um, structures to be forward thinking and enable uh, new businesses to come in. Now I know there's like pluses and minuses around the bit license and we could go into all of those uh, other areas, but really this trust predates it. And so we have all of the authorities to act like a bit uh, license holder, but we're a trust company. And a trust company is basically a bank, but it's mm -hmm. actually a bank that's safer um, because we don't take deposits and then go make loans with the deposits. Nobody's giving their assets to us as a loan. What is going on is our customers are giving us assets and we're holding them fully segregated, completely separate in their name. If anything happens to Paxos, your assets are still safe and good to go. And so a trust company is actually a really safer version of a bank. That's important for the role we wanna provide and play, which is being a financial market infrastructure. And the whole point of financial market infrastructure is not that you're giving your assets to somebody who you trust and then they're gonna go do something with it. It's that you're giving their, your assets to them and you know they're always gonna be there. And historically, in the US, financial market infrastructure is set up as trust companies. DTC, which holds all of the stocks and corporate bonds in the US, is a New York State trust. Um, Bank of New York, the largest custodian in the world, New York State trust. Um, the CDS Clearinghouse, um, New York State trust. So this is a really time-worn path. And we want to think of ourselves as so much more than an exchange. That's where uh, the, the branding of Paxos has come from, because the whole point is how can we take the world's assets and put them into a blockchain environment? How can we upgrade the way assets move to allow them to have the benefits of being on a blockchain, even if they're not necessarily something that's natively digital? And so there are $600 trillion of assets in the world. My strong belief is that on uh, in the limits, in a long enough time horizon, all of those assets are gonna end up on a blockchain. Now that could take uh, 20 years, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not gonna happen. And our goal is, and getting the trust was to really be a provider of infrastructure to enable that to happen. And so that's why we went and got it. It's really a big differentiator. There are a couple other New York State trusts out there that have subsequently been chartered, but they're really not uh, being used to create financial market infrastructure so much as they're being used uh, to to play the role of a custodian in crypto or maybe to um, uh, play the role of an exchange in crypto. That is one very important piece of our strategy, but it's much more than that. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about these these multiple components because structurally speaking, um, you know, financial services are typically less technology companies and more regulatory companies. Um, crypto offers this unique uh, 
hybrid approach, I'd say. Um, even though Jamie Dimon, you know, every single year he gets up and he says, well, we're a technology company first. Look at how many developers we have. Everybody knows that's not true. Anyway, um, for crypto, it's, it's probably more of a clean hybrid, at least for the regulated businesses. Some of the um, more loosely regulated businesses are the ones that are playing a little bit fast and loose with jurisdiction, with KYC, um, are certainly more technology, fintech businesses. Um, for um, for you guys, where, where are you spending a lion's share of your time? Because... It, it is going to be impossible for a company that's, that's as regulated as Paxos and Itbit to compete on liquidity of um, certain trading pairs that are outside of the top, you know, several assets are listed. Uh, and it's going to be impossible for you, justifiably so, to offer 100x leverage products, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, so the it seems to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you've basically you know more or less triangulated on three things. We're going to fo- focus on the top, you know, three to five assets and provide liquid trading pairs for institutional customers that have requirements for um, which venues they actually conduct their trading on. You've got the stablecoin, um, and then you've got this new Pax Gold, um, all of which um, are playing into the same. I'd say single macro thesis that Bitcoin is going to be a big asset. Therefore, crypto will be a large asset class. And as that scales, maybe we will scale our asset support over time. Um, is that the right way to think about uh, your mental model for how this is going to evolve? Or, or how do you think about the positioning of the business and, and how much you're doing technically versus from a regulatory perspective, um, given that this, this approach has been very intentional to work um, to build trust with the regulators in the state of New York, which is about as cumbersome as you could possibly imagine. Yeah. So, uh, um, a couple of things off of that. Um, I do agree by the way that, uh, we're trying to not be a financial services company. We're trying mm-hmm. to be a technology product company, uh, that's enabling other financial services firms. Mm-hmm. And that is a big difference. And the and it doesn't matter how many engineers you have. You could have 100% of your company be engineers. It has to be about the way you're trying to solve problems. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the way you can tell about how someone's trying to solve problems is how they organize themselves. So if your engineers are reporting to your chief administrative officer, um, which happens at a number of banks, that's probably a good sign that you're not a technology company. Um, whereas if your product and engineers are... Um, a majority of your company and they're the ones that are helping to drive the roadmap, if not the prime movers of that roadmap, then you look much more like a technology product firm, a financial product firm, as opposed to a financial services firm. So I think that's an important point to make. And the reason why it's so relevant is because I think it's very difficult to make that organizational shift, that mindset shift. That's why it's so difficult for, I think, incumbents in financial services to begin to react to this new world because you're solving problems in a different way, you're creating products, um, you're interacting with your customers in a different way, and that's a fundamental shift. And it's not a fundamental shift that's easy to do when you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees. In fact, it's probably impossible to do. Um, But it doesn't mean that some of the incumbents won't survive and potentially still be some of the largest players. Um, But that's really because of the weight of history as opposed to uh, what I think can happen is a lot of disruption like you saw with Netflix or you've seen in uh, energy markets or you've seen it in the media markets. You saw Google do it to advertising amongst other things. Um, there's so much opportunity 
to really fundamentally shift financial services because of that, because that services problem um, is not the way you should be solving problems now. Um, now, so if you think about what we're trying to do at Paxos is we're really trying to be this financial infrastructure that anybody can build products on for this new world. So um, we've built our own products in certain examples, uh, but ultimately we want anyone to use our regulatory stack and our APIs to build on top of it. So we built our own stable coin, but now we have one for Binance, we have one for Hopi. There's a bunch more that we'll be announcing over time. So the whole point being anyone can use our infrastructure to create tokenized dollars. We've created our own gold token, but we're completely fine. We'd love other people to create other tokenized commodity products on our infrastructure. It's, you know, that's the idea here. Um, and uh, we're, a, we're a custodian holding all these different types of assets. We're holding cash, we hold gold, we also hold crypto. In the case of crypto, we created an exchange because our custodian uh, role meant that we had to not take counterparty risk. You can't go route trades to other exchanges that aren't following the right rules, that are offering 100x leverage, that are offering coins that are really securities. And so that necessitated us to always have IPID as a liquidity pool. Uh, but if you look at what the underlying factor is, um, that's a product using our custody capabilities. Our tokenization is a product that's using our tokenization capabilities all because we're a custodian. And we're now doing that in securities too, where we're tokenizing securities um, and uh, we have firms that are moving and trading real live US equities trades now off our infrastructure. We want anyone to be able to build off of our APIs to create trading opportunities um, and brokering opportunities for their clients using what we've done. And mm -hmm. so that's where I would kind of uh, frame what our grand strategy is here. How do we act as a layer that anyone can build on? It shouldn't just be um, one type of wallet that's Paxos's wallet. It could be PayPal wallet. It could be a Libra wallet. It could be a Google wallet. It could be an Apple wallet. And that's completely fine. Uh, we're not here to um, uh, pick winners. We're here to provide capabilities to others to build on top of. I think that, uh, that's a great strategy, vision. It, you know, it, it, it certainly makes sense. Um, it's a little bit different from the question of where is the business today, right? Um, and so, you know, uh, we've we've heard about securities tokenization since 2013, right? This was the original blockchain, not Bitcoin, use case. And it seems that maybe that is slowly starting to get solved. And yes, there are some experiments that are going on. Um, but it is fair to say that the, the three core pillars of the business, at least today, continue to be the gold product, the stable coin, and, um, and the, the ITBIT exchange, correct? Or, or, or have some of these tokenized security experiments um, taken off and, and gotten critical mass so that you, know, you are seeing more third-party institutions plug in and, and try to build these structured products. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think there's any doubt that it, what needs to happen in securities markets takes time. It takes mm -hmm. years. We're doing it. You know, we have a no action letter from the SEC, which is fairly rare. We're working on having a clearing agency registration. That'll probably happen early next year. That's when we'll be able to go live. Until then, a lot of what we're doing is in early stages as opposed to live products. So there's no doubt about that. Now, having said that, these are real live equity trades that are settling through. It's just we're limited to a certain small um, uh, pool of securities. Really, um, that's because we know securities is the biggest pool of assets. There's $600 trillion of assets in the world. 
um, it's something like 150 trillion are liquid securities. Mm-hmm. Getting those onto a blockchain takes time. Once you've done it, it's really powerful. Where are the areas where you have early adoption are areas where you don't have that level of regulation. Guess where you don't have those levels of regulation? You can tokenize cash, not really that regulated. We're regulated, we create a regulated token out of it, but cash uh, tokenization is not per se regulated. There's lots of examples mm-hmm. of non-regulated institutions like say true USD or whatever who have tokenized cash. Um, and um, uh, even USDC, it's not a tokenized uh, dollar. Um, it's issued by Center, which is unregulated. Um, and so you can do that in cash. Gold, we have a regulated gold token, but you don't need to be regulated to create a gold token. Tyler did, and we know they're mm-hmm. not regulated. Um, and, um, and you can create an exchange that's not regulated too. So, but the point really being that where's the early adoption is where there's lighter regulation so you can get the products out there. I don't think that um, at all changes our viewpoint about where securities is going to go. People have different views. I really strongly believe that's probably the most important thing that we can do. Um, But the key point is it's not about the exchange. It's not even necessarily about the products that we've created. It's about the capability that we put into place, which is a custodial infrastructure to handle any type of asset. Mm -hmm. And then you have to get uh, firms to be able to use that capability. And so we've done that with dollars. So Binance created their dollar stablecoin off of what we did. Holpi created their dollar stablecoin off of what we did. We've created a dollar stablecoin off of it. There's going to be a number of more examples of that. And so that's a prime example of, you know, we're creating a capability that anybody can leverage and use. And mm-hmm. I actually think uh, we'll have examples of people doing that off of exchange infrastructure too. We won't be the only exchange using our infrastructure. Uh, we actually have a number of things coming down the pipe where other people will be using our infrastructure for their exchange too. And so that's where I'm trying to say is like, it's, um, uh, it's less about exactly where we're at now and it's more about how this is, continues to evolve into um, an infrastructural use. It's very difficult, like uh, say Amazon with AWS, the first customer of AWS was Amazon. Now it's not, and it still might be the largest one but it's not the only one. And so we had to build our own products that were sitting on our infrastructure, but we've now moved to the point where that's not the case anymore. We have examples where it's not the case. Um, why, why can't you trade PAX Gold on ItBit today? You can. You can, you can trade it. So PAX Gold trades against USD. You go to paxos.com if you wanna buy large sizes, you can buy right from the London gold market. If you want to trade the tokenized gold, you go to you can go to Itbit and trade it. But by the way, it's been listed on a lot of other uh, places as well. FTX has a, both the future off of it and the spot trading. Kraken mm-hmm. has a spot trading. Bitthumb. There's a lot of other exchanges that'll be listing it. We want it to be listed as many places as possible. And if someone came along and said we'd like to create our own uh, gold stablecoin, um, we'd absolutely do that for them. Got it. And we've had conversations around it. Okay. Um... Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, so both uh, our feed, uh, Nomics, and uh, CoinMarketCap are not picking up that trading pair, which is what I had searched for earlier on. But maybe that's just uh, you know uh, something that's overlooked um, with uh, with with the data company. So we'll have to we'll have to look at that again. Um, so you know the uh, there's there's another element here um, with adoption where the gold digital gold pairing and narrative seems like it's accelerating, getting, you know, more compelling by the day. Um, has, has that impacted 
your short-term thinking on kind of going all in on securities tokens and, and playing this long game versus like, you know, take the money that's, that's, you know, kind of dangled right in front of your face. And, and, and it strikes me that Paxos and Ipbit seem to be um, maybe the most ideally positioned uh, company from an institutional narrative standpoint to be able to say, you can do all of your gold trading and all of your, um, uh, Bitcoin trading, digital gold trading in one platform, and we are regulated and we have all these checks and, and you know, we'll be able to get through your compliance process so that when the fin- Fed prints another $10 trillion and we have, you know, uh, stimulus number four, five, six, seven, um, your purchasing power isn't getting destroyed. And if you don't like Bitcoin, that's fine. 5% in Bitcoin, 95% in, in Pax Gold or, or something to that effect. From a narrative uh, cycle standpoint, it seems like position A I'm curious if that conversation has actually gained any traction right now, because um, the pairing seems powerful. If you're just trying to, you know, do the whole song and dance about why Bitcoin is the savior and it's going to be a true, you know, international reserve currency and, and digital, you know, gold inflation hedge, that's one thing. But to be able to say, look, this is the play. Here are the available assets, and put both of them side by side. Um, I have to feel like that could be making some headway. We haven't really heard that from other institutional managers just yet, but I wonder if it's because they're, they're missing half of the equation. Well, I think um, there's, a, there's a couple uh, things to unpack there. The, the first is, um, my view, uh, the exciting thing about Bitcoin is that it could become digital gold, mm-hmm. but not that it is digital gold yet. Uh, there's a lot of things that it has to go through. It still needs more tests. It still needs more adoption. It still needs more stability because um, it has hit a point of a widespread use. And so that hasn't happened yet. That doesn't mean that Bitcoin isn't a good investment. I think that actually makes it a very good investment. Um, and um, because it can have significant outperformance as you go, to that, you go through that adoption curve. Um, whereas gold is obviously something that's been a monetary asset for now thousands and thousands of years. People understand what it is, but surprisingly, it's not easy to get, um, gold into your, uh, portfolio when you, and when I mean by gold, I mean real gold, you either own it physically or you own synthetic gold. And I, what I'm so excited about with PAX gold is that you have the opportunity to own real gold in a digital form. Each token relates to the serial number of a bar in a Brinks account in London. And so you actually own allocated gold. You have a legal title. You can transfer it around to anybody else in the world. And you're, you're buying this in a way that's fully segregated in your name. That's very powerful. It allows retail investors or, frankly, institutions to now own London gold where you couldn't before. You could own a gold ETF. You could own the gold futures. And we've seen lots of problems with those instruments as we've gone through this uh, period of turmoil here. And if you want to go buy physical gold in your retail person, you're playing a 20 or 30% markup today. That's not always the case. Generally, it's like 5 to 8% or 10%. Uh, but that's a huge markup still. Um, and now you could go and now own real gold that can be fungibly moved around in any fraction, 24 hours, seven days a week, nearly instantaneously. And so I think that's a really big improvement. And so I think given the turmoil we're in, there is a place in people's portfolios for both assets. You have to put the weight on which one uh, you want to own based on your risk tolerance and your view of the world and 
uh, the work that you've done. Um, but I think you, we've created a, a way for you to have Bitcoin, a way for you to own uh, gold, and frankly, a way for you to own dollars that has the least amount of risk and the highest level of um, underlying ownership. And so even with our dollars, um, they're backed by T-bills or FDIC insurance. So you're never taking uh, risk against the bank when you own PAX dollars or you own Binance or you own Hopi, you are actually a Hopi dollar. All of those are T-bills. So you're bankruptcy proof against any um, generalized or even specific bank failure. That's really powerful and it's making money be just as um, uh, safe for individuals as it is for the banks. Because what do banks basically have? They have dollars at the Federal Reserve that's backed by, well, theoretically it was just T-bills. Now it's all kinds of different stuff. But anyways, it was just T-bills. And if you uh, basically have a dollar from Paxos, it's backed by T-bills. It's just as good as central bank money. That's better than what you can get from a bank. And so we've created these ways to allow you to own assets that you couldn't historically do, yet still have the same utility, if not more, as traditional assets. Mm -hmm. um, makes sense. So, you know, I, I, I recognize that the much bigger multi-trillion dollar, maybe even, you know, larger than that opportunity, tens of trillions, is in the security side. Um, some of the early experiments we've seen have been in markets where uh, they're inefficient, they're information asymmetries, and, and there's significantly less liquidity than in equities. And in particular, you've seen a lot of experiments about, around real estate. Um, what do you think the first wave, the first credible wave of non-gold securities will be that are tokenized and issued on chain? Well, there's been some early um, examples of doing some commercial paper with certain mm -hmm. institutions. You know, I think it was... Um, uh, Mercedes, I think that may have done, uh, an issuance. Um, we've seen, uh, some other like kind of one-time issuances happen. I know T zero has been trying hard. Um, I think we took a slightly different approach. Um, and because we got the regulatory approvals of trust company and we've gotten follow on regulatory approvals from the sec, we have a full DTC participant account. We have access to the Federal Reserve National Settlement System, full access to SWIFT. We've built an entire regulatory stack sitting on top of our trust. And in the case of securities, the no action letter, the full DTC participant account, means that we're backward combat compatible with the way the world works today. And that's really important because in order to go from where we are now, which is essentially zero assets on the blockchain, aside from native crypto, essentially zero to the 600 trillion, you know, you have to figure out a way to do a migration. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that um, uh, you won't have new uses that just immediately pop up for securities that can go around an entirely different route, not involving the current incumbents. That's definitely possible. But for things like U.S. equities, you need to figure out a path of adoption uh, that allows the, um, the market to migrate because there's a network that already exists. That network um, is working a certain way. How are you going to get it to work a different way? That's what's been so hard for all these firms to do because blockchain is a network and the network effect works against you before it's working for you. It only works for you when you get to critical size. And I think we've taken a different tact here, which is you can operate on Paxos with zero change in what type of integrations you need to do because we've simplified it and made it backward compatible. And that's, I think, what we've done that's different than others. It was not an easy path, 
We've been working at it now for four years. We're finally live with Credit Suisse and Instanet Nomura. Um, SockGen will be integrated hopefully within the next several months, a uh, month or two. And we actually have a number of other participants that have already verbally agreed to join. So you'll see this go grain mac, um, uh, critical mass. And when we get the CA1 approval from the SEC next year, we'll be able to really turn this on. And it will, it'll start with equities, but it's going to be about so much more than that. And um, that's what's exciting, I think, um, is how you can take uh, these, these markets with this old infrastructure that are clearly not fit for purpose anymore and get a real fundamental change. And I think that's why it hasn't happened yet because it just you just can't flip that network over without all of this other uh, foundation that gets laid. And historically, venture-backed firms can't have that much runway to be able to lay the foundation to get to this point. Um, it's just not how they generally operate. It's let's get an early product out there, let's show traction, let's show that it works, then let's pour gasoline on the fire because it's mm -hmm. already lit. As opposed to, I gotta go spend four years building an infrastructure in order to prove that I could build a product that would work. I mean, generally, uh, that makes sense why you wouldn't be a venture-backed firm in that type of business because it is a long tail. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's crazy because you can make the argument that the seniorage model for Bitcoin and other digital assets is the only reason that the industry has made it this far and is still around because you do have that long-term um, speculative sidecar investment to venture capital investing, right? And, and this happened, especially in the early days, you know you know well, I mean, you know, from, from you know, my time at TCG, it was the same thing. There were certain investments that you made, not because you thought they were gonna outperform Bitcoin, but because if you didn't make them, then Bitcoin wouldn't have the infrastructure that, that, that it needed to, to get to the next level. So there, there are these kind of full Ouroboros, uh, you know, investments that, um, uh, you know, most people don't appreciate, especially in the earlier days. Now it's probably a little bit different because um, there's still a ton of upside for, for Bitcoin, but it's harder to do a thousand X from here. It's easier to thousand X with, you know, from, from another startups uh, perspective that wasn't true for a long time. And in fact, you know, there's only a couple of businesses that have outperformed Bitcoin uh, from a venture return standpoint uh, over the same time period. You would have, you would have backed that venture business. Um, That's exactly right. Binance and, and Coinbase, you know, probably being two of them. And, and then, you know, the other exchanges, maybe you guys should include it being, you know, maybe on par uh, with, with, with that investment return. Um, I know we've only got a couple minutes left here. So I want to talk about today's developments and, you know, the investor and everybody uh, that has invested professionally dies hard. Uh, how do you think about day-to-day -day, uh, trading and just making sense of this market right now? Because, like, we're fucking, we're living in the upside down. You know, like 17 million jobless <laughs> that's claims, that's probably a few million underweight when you count furloughed employees. And, and you know, we talked about this in the onset, you know, it could get up to 30, 40 million people unemployed in the U.S., 20% plus, numbers not seen since, you know, 80 years ago. Um, and they're not actually fixing many of the structural problems with the economy right now and, and kind of what, what happens next. So um, it seems like the, the, the worst of all possible worlds um, yes, maybe it's a good thing for, for Bitcoin, but there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of other investable universe out there. How do you, are you thinking about it at all? Or are you just trying to say, you know what, blinders on, I'm going to put you know, some of my portfolio on autopilot or, or, you know, are you shopping around or positioning um, for, you know, worse scenarios still? Well, there's a couple uh, um, ways to think about this, I think. Uh, the first is, you never can stop thinking about the markets because even if you're not investing in them directly, 
Um, and even if they're not um, giving you clear price signals because there's um, kind of a lot of different actors like the Fed now involved in the markets, they're still like telling you a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And you need to like take that information and think about it. And so in the case of, you know, the S&Ps fall 30 uh, some percent from the highs and the world locks up because of um, uh, the pandemic and you can't price in the risk, you really have to start thinking about what is that implying? And there's a lot of systemic risk that it's implying. So just from Paxos, even if I don't do anything personally, I think about how do we make sure we don't have cash that's exposed to the banks above the FDIC limit? You know, how do I make sure that we have, you know, um, maximum level of safety against counterparties and you have a number of them? How do you make sure that you're really protecting the business so that you're, you're truly safe on an operating basis? Client funds are always safe, you know, but how do you make sure that you're able to weather what could be, you know, just an unbelievably uh, catastrophic storm? And I don't think we're through it yet. Um, I think we've had a big rally. The Fed is, and the government has thrown a lot of stimulus, but that's not the same thing as saying you're through the storm and uh, markets are trying to figure out how to discount these activities. But in some cases um, they can't discount it because you have the fed sitting there buying so much assets. You don't really know what the right price is. And so I think the fed has probably done a good job of relieving the liquidity concerns in the market. Oh, there's not enough liquidity. Someone's going to freeze because there's not enough liquidity. But what is not clear that's happened is have we alleviated the solvency concerns? Mm-hmm. Meaning, is the size of the hole so big that firms fail? And we've seen examples um, and estimates of maybe it's a four trillion size size hole, maybe it's a seven trillion size hole. We don't really know. It's just unknowable at the moment because we don't know how long this is going to go on for. Um, but if it's a big size hole like that, you're going to have insolvencies. The banking system only has two trillion dollars of capital in it. Um, and they're not the only lender in the economy, but they're the main intermediators of the economy. And uh, if you have $7 trillion hole, I can promise you some banks are going to fail. Um, you can't have 20 plus percent unemployment and uh, GDP numbers that are being estimated at minus 30, minus 40, maybe, and someone, Fed uh, Governor Bullard said minus 50. You can't have that type of GDP even for one quarter without a lot of insolvencies. And even though the government is throwing a lot of money at it to try and fill the hole, it might not, it's not getting there in time. So I think you have to be thinking about this. So what am I doing personally? Um, Well, the first thing is you can get lost following the markets on a day-to-day basis. And I'm really spending all my time running Paxos. So I make sure that Paxos is safe. The next thing I do is I make sure that I can have a portfolio that doesn't require me to have to manage it uh, on a minute to minute basis. And frankly, that means a lot of cash that's in T-bills just like PAX dollars or Binance dollars or Hopi dollars, you know, have it either in T-bills or something similar, uh, which is like uh, the products we've created for our stable coins. Mm-hmm. Own gold, um, but make sure you, you own physical gold. An ETF or a future is not the same thing. Um, I, you know, everyone should think of their own risk parameters, but I don't think it's as good as owning either PAX gold or owning physical gold that you hold yourself. And then lastly, um, I think crypto. I think, you know, this is, the crisis is proving out the value proposition of, for instance, Bitcoin. The networks, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, are certainly under strain, but they're actually handling this way better than the current financial system. Um, it doesn't mean that those, Ethereum or Bitcoin, by the way, could handle the entire load of the financial system right now. Clearly, it could. But um, for the size of the ecosystem it was, it's actually able to handle it. The size of the ecosystem the financial system is supposed to be handled, it can't. 
And that's just true. And, um, and you know, there's, there, there's no getting around that. And this is the second crisis that's illustrating it. So it's time to move on. We got to figure out something new. And I think um, clearly Bitcoin is showing that as an example of what it can be. And uh, so I think this is really highlighting Bitcoin. Now, obviously, Bitcoin and gold are fluctuating all over the place, just like the stock markets. So that's mm-hmm. why I kind of think be safe, have upside potential uh, in Bitcoin and potentially gold. But ultimately, let's preserve capital. These are dangerous times. I don't need to try and you know, make a lot of money whipping around in the markets, build Paxos and create long-term value. And so that's how I'm focusing on things. Um, you know, if you could unwind me and put me back in a trading seat, I mean, this would be, um, you know, something uh, that would really be both a lot of fun and a huge amount of stress on. Uh, but that's not what I can do now. I can't do that well and run all these other um, uh, things that need to be handled. So you got to kind of pick what you can do and then do that well. Um, one, I, first of all, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I have one comment, uh, just to follow up on that with some data and then one lightning round two part question, uh, and then we'll wrap up. But, um, the, the thing that people don't understand, um, when Bitcoin was born, it was in the teeth of the financial crisis. And that's when we started racking up deficits and you had TARP and you had all of this you know, QE infinity, um, easing the, uh, the one uh, stat that, that stands out to me is we pre-financial crisis were about 65% debt to GDP. Um, that sw- swole all the way up to swole, swole, swelled. I don't know. Swelled uh, all the way, all, all, the, all the way up to 105. Um, yeah. And it only then started to tick a little bit down uh, with the Fed unwinding his balance sheet, with us narrowing the, the deficit. Um, and now it's back up. Uh, now over 105%. And now we're talking about you know it is hard to envision a scenario where we don't get to. 150% plus debt to GDP, which is an And when you say way. debt, you mean, then that's the government debt because, yes. you know, total debt to GDP is 330% all-time yes. highs around the world, Just which is talking crazy about thing. Yeah, and a yeah. lot of that's yeah. dollar denominated. So it's, it thinks yeah. things are going to get weird and, and I don't think we're out of the jungle yet. Um, I agree with that. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, which is to say there's, there's some real numbers backing this up, not just intuition. Um, final question, though, uh, we'll, we'll end with a fun one. And I'm glad uh, that we had the conversation early on about the financial crisis and, and kind of the, the, the big short-esque uh, type of start that you had, because it is going to yield my favorite question for all future guests. My first uh, of the two-part question, um, which character would you have been in the big short? Oh, um you know, or which uh, were you? <laughs> not that Mr. Hill mentioned in the book. I'm one of the pages. Um, I, I actually was uh, very happy to not be in the book. Um, so mm-hmm. I guess none of the characters. Okay. <laughs> can, um, I, can I pick none of them? Uh, all right. I'll let you off the hook for that one only because I'm going to ask the second one. Um, when the story of this industry is written, um, you're, you're not going to have an option like you did with the big short not to be in the book. Um, you are definitively going to be in the book. If you are in the book in the movie, who's playing your character? Or who would you want oh, to play your character? I have no idea. Um, uh, Jason Biggs. Nice. All right. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm hoping I'm going to ask this question enough where there's collisions, and then we can have a, we can have a battle royale for. Yeah, for, I know that'll be fun. Someone else is going to try and take him, <laughs> and I'm going to we're going to have to go after it. Throw it out. Oh, and and uh, well, we don't even have a chance to talk about kickboxing, so we're going to have to have uh, we're going to have to have you on again uh, to to regale us with some of your your tales uh, from from the ring or the octagon, but, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll save that for, uh, for something next. No, that's right. We always want to leave the audience wanting more. So yeah, it's good spending yeah. time with you, Ryan. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Likewise. And, and, uh, Chad, always a pleasure. 
Uh, good finally catching up again. Stay safe, be good. And for everybody that's watching, take care and thank you for tuning in. See you next time on Qualified Opinions. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.